morning. We had a, an army of a praise team this morning. Amen. That was, yeah, a peaceful army. This is an exciting time of year um, in the Christian calendar. There's usually only about two things that we really kind of notice when it comes to the Christian year. Those are Christmas and coming up next weekend, Easter. But if you weren't aware, um, a lot of the Christian world pays attention to kind of every week, every Sunday for them, um, what is happening in the Christian seasons. And a lot, of them, a lot of denominations use what's called electionary. If you don't know what electionary is, it is um, these very carefully and thoughtfully chosen uh, passages that take a congregation through the Bible in a three-year cycle. And so what they do is it goes through the, the, the seasons of the year. Um, and so for a week like Easter, there will be passages that have to do with Easter. For Christmas, there will be passages that have to do for Christmas. But on other weeks, it's for different uh, stories or, or, or points or, or theologies uh, from the Bible. And so each week they have uh, different readings, one from the Old Testament, one from Psalms, one from the Gospels, and one from somewhere else in the New Testament. And they collectively, um, as a congregation, center their whole worship service on these passages. Now, most Adventist churches don't uh, use this, but some do, and some, uh, some people find it meaningful. And I think as we're looking forward uh, next week to such a high point, and we will be going through those scriptures and, and telling those stories of Jesus' death and resurrection, that it'd be a good opportunity to see um, what the passages are for this week um, in the Christian calendar. So we've been in the season of Lent, if you, if you don't know, what we know what Lent is, right? So it's not just the day after everyone parties down in New Orleans and then they have their hangovers the next day. Lent is a season, a 40-day season in the Christian calendar where people fast from something in order to help them uh, focus on and, um, and, and be spiritually disciplined on the story of Jesus' death. And so when I, was in, uh, when I was an undergrad, I went to an Adventist school uh, for college, and the, the spiritual life department there that I was working for, they were really into encouraging college students to do Lent. Now, if you were never that age, or you've never worked with people that age, that's kind of a big ask. College students aren't known for their um, restraint, and for their desire to give things up for 40 days. And so we would, all, we would all pick something each year that we would try and do and try to hold each other accountable to uh, fasting from that thing. Has anyone participated in Lent before? Has anyone ever fasted? Yeah. Would anyone like to share something that they've given up before? Eh? Eh? Okay, I won't make you. I remember a lot of my friends would give up social media. That was one I was never strong enough to do. Um, or one year I tried to give up consumerism for Lent. That didn't go very well. Like, what does that even mean? It was a good idea, I think, but it just it didn't work out. Um, this year I gave up red meat, which means I'm just not a good Adventist, because if I was, I wouldn't need to give it up. I'd just be a vegetarian. So hopefully I'm working towards that. I'm, I'm using this lens to get, get towards that. Um, but Lent ends on Easter, and so right now we are in the season where we are looking at two different liturgies, is what they're called. One of the palms, or Palm Sunday, Jesus is triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and the other is the Passion, or the Passion Week, or Jesus' last week of life. Those are the things that we're looking at, the scriptures we're exploring today. So we might be reading a little bit more scripture together than we're necessarily used to, 
But I don't think that's a bad thing, right? That's okay. Um, so just bear with me as we go through this. For those of you wondering, I'm not Todd. Todd's not here this week. Uh, he's in Tennessee officiating a wedding, so that's, that's cool. Um, I, how many of us know Nye? Do we know Nye and Tanya? They're getting married this weekend, so we are uh, praying for them and wishing them good things in Tennessee from afar. All right, our first passage is from Psalms 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We recognize this one. We probably heard this one. As I continue reading this passage, I want us to try and count how many hymns or Christian songs or Christian cliches we can get from this passage. All right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That's at least like three. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's a lot right there, that one. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Not only is this passage a treasure trove for song lyrics, I saw you counting, um, this is evocative of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And so that's why it's paired together with this passage, this binding the festal procession with branches. So when we go over to Matthew 21, we can see why um, we're reading this psalm. Matthew 21, verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The gospel accounts of Jesus' life and death, especially here in Matthew, are especially and particularly concerned with the fact that Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth, is the Messiah the readers are waiting for. He's the one that fulfills the prophecies with which Matthew's audience is so familiar. There's a perfect example of one of those prophecies if we just go back a few verses earlier of what we just read in Matthew 21, verse 2. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The writer of Matthew is telling us here that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the king coming to us, humble and mounted on a donkey. In fact, Jesus quotes that passage himself. Jesus has lived 30 plus years to this point knowing these prophecies and, and, and knowing his place in them. 
And now he's at the culmination of his story. He's carrying out the narrative those scriptural passages have given him. When it comes to a triumphant procession in the holy city, that's not such a bad story to be a part of. It's later on that it gets difficult. Uh, last week, uh, Todd and myself were not here as well. We were in uh, Florida at a conference. And uh, I don't know if any of us are from Florida, so I don't mean offense, but Florida's not really my scene. And if it was, there's like cool parts of Florida. We were not in the cool part of Florida. We were like in the north away from things. Um, and so we're like the north central Florida, so like not close to a beach. We were at this camp. It was kind of a nice camp, but it was like hot and swampy. And, um, and so we decided that we needed uh, to, get, to get an escape and go to the, the teeming metropolis of Gainesville, which is just the town where University of Florida is. So we went there and, and I convinced Todd, even though he doesn't drink coffee, to join me at this one coffee shop I've been wanting to go to. And so we went and uh, it was delicious. Hung out with like the, the people there and, and made friends with like the owner. It was great. So then the next day I'm like, bro, let's go back. He's like, oh, okay. Um, and so, so we went, we, dr we drove all the way back to Gainesville um, and we went back to this coffee place and hung out with them again. It was even better than the first time. And so as we're leaving to go back to our conference, I have a to-go cup and we're in the car and we're going. We get back and it's lunchtime and we're in this like huge avenue cafeteria, great haystack lunch. And we're with a bunch of other pastors just hanging out. I'm still drinking my coffee and, and as I get to the bottom of it, I'm sipping and, and I feel something that isn't liquid coming through the, the little hole in the cup. I'm like, oh, that's gross. Like, why, how did the grounds from the coffee get into the cup? That, that doesn't make any sense. And so, so then I, I start to feel it around in my mouth a little bit more and I realize, oh no, it's probably some of that Florida Spanish moss. It probably fell off a tree into my cup somehow. That's what it is. But then as I begin to pull it out, I was, oh no, that's not moss, it's not coffee grounds, that's a daddy long leg spider. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there and Todd and the other pastors at the table are still conversing about whatever great talk we had just gone to. I'm just kind of like in disbelief that this has just happened to me. And I'm looking around like, does everyone else see the spider that was on my tongue? Um, and so then I finally revealed what happened to me, and they just laughed at me. Um, and my disbelief turned to horror and terror and sadness. And as I said, and as I was telling the story to everyone that would listen because I just needed, I don't know, I needed to get it out. It was too much for me to handle by myself. And, and as I was telling them that, people, people thought, oh, how did, you, how did you not see it there? How did you... Oh, you, so you drank the coffee and then found out later that there was a, no, no, no. It, I drank it and it was on me, okay. So then, then I thought, well, what could I have done to have prevented this? Like, what would I have done differently now that I am post Daddy Long Legs coffee? That the rest of my life will be measured in that term. What would I do differently? I guess I could, I could take the top off and check to make sure there's no spider. Okay, yeah, and then if I see one, probably just throw the coffee away, right? Or, I mean, I guess if I was really needing that cup, I, I could, oh, there's a spider. Okay, good now. But if I had known that that was in there the whole time, I definitely would not have drunk it. I don't think 
any of us in our right mind would have. If I had known it was there, I would not have drunk it. Now this is a silly, trivial, disgusting story. But imagine knowing for sure something bad is going to happen to you. Not just suspecting, knowing what's coming up next and choosing to, to partake of that thing, choosing to take that path, choosing to drink that cup anyways. Now that's kind of a nice skill or a nice thing to have with knowing the future when all that's required is, well, you need a ride on a donkey and you can tell someone to go get a donkey and you just know that it'll work out. That's nice. But it's different when what lays ahead, what is on that path, is betrayal, denial, and death. We read about Jesus who has a deep knowledge of scripture, who understands his place in fulfilling what these scriptures predict. He knows what he's heading for. That's one thing on Palm Sunday. It's another thing during the Passion Week. So when we transition from those Palm scriptures to the Passion scriptures, we get to Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. There, once again, working out nicely. So the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the 12, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They became greatly distressed and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus replied, You have said so. Jesus knows that one of these twelve, he knows which one of these twelve people that is closest to him in the world, that one of them has betrayed him. Even more, he, he knew all along that one of these twelve would betray him, but he still includes Judas in the group. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he has made predictions about himself and what he will have to do. Judas has been beside him while he said these things. He's seen the truth of Jesus' words. And now Jesus is telling him that he knew Judas would betray him and that it would be better if Judas had not been born. Man. If we continue in Matthew 26, 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Once again, quoting from the Old Testament. Verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now here, we have a faithful disciple, Peter, one who knows that he has not betrayed Jesus, the one who walked on water with Jesus for a little bit, the one who three times told Jesus that he loved him, and whom Jesus told three times to feed his sheep. Peter, 
the one who will become so integral a part of the early church. This Peter will now deny Jesus three times. Just like Judas, Peter has been there by Jesus' side and seen the claims Jesus makes come to pass. And now, to his disbelief, Jesus tells him he will betray him three times. Now, if we were to keep reading this passage, we would see the last hours of Jesus' life unfold. But we're not going to do that because we want you to come back next week when we do the whole thing. We'll participate in that story on Good Friday at 7 o'clock on Saturday at our normal time, where we will also take communion, and on Sunday at the Nauberg Vanshell in Central Park at 11 a.m. Bring your friends. We're not going to go through the details of Jesus' last hours right now. I want us to focus on these three people. There are three different reactions and responses to what is about to happen to them. Jesus, Judas, and Peter. Matthew 26, 36. That Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. He said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. After praying this prayer, asking if this, if it's at all possible for this thing to pass from him. He goes and finds his disciples sleeping, tells them to wake up, goes and prays it again, repeats this process, and then Judas and the high priest come to arrest him. Verse 53, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled? which say it must happen this way. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, you did not arrest me, but all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Knowing what must happen, despite how much it pains him, Jesus submits He's tried, he's beaten, he's humiliated, he's crucified. This whole thing that we're a part of, this building, these people, this community, the lens through which we see the world, this is all inspired and based on the decision that Jesus made by this path that he walked, by this cup that he drank. And this is good news. Jesus lived his life and died his death, fulfilling those prophecies and establishing a kingdom of God where all are welcomed and loved. But too often, the story is told, the brutal depictions of the passion narrative are emphasized in order to create in us a feeling and to evoke a reaction from us that, that is not what Jesus would have. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the 2004 film, Passion of the Christ. It came out when I was a sophomore um, in a Christian school, and I was really involved in church and campus ministries, and I was, I was in it all the way. So this movie comes out, and I, I just am hearing all these amazing things from pastors and church leaders and teachers and Christian reviewers and about how life-changing and moving this movie is and how it's making everybody cry when they see it. So I, I am excited to go watch it. 
And um, if you don't, if you haven't seen her, you don't know, it's very, very violent. It's very violent. Um, and throughout the movie, I'm not having the tears stream down my face. I'm not having this moment where I say, oh, wow, okay. So the movie ends, and I make this subconscious, this unconscious decision that, like, I have to act like it moved me. So I talk about how great it was and how, yeah, man. Um, I even, like, bought it on DVD and had, like, a poster of it and everything, trying for those next few years to, like, say, oh, yeah, this this depiction of Jesus' last hours, the brutality he had to experience, the violence he had to experience, that means so much to me that, that I feel that. It never happened. It wasn't until years later that I realized that most of the strong reactions of people around me uh, to that film was because of guilt. The guilt that each brutal moment of violence was caused by the viewer. But guilt only leads to death. Jesus came to bring us life. We have a choice of how we react to this passion story and to what Jesus did. We have a choice of how we react to the prophecies being fulfilled. In Matthew 27, we see Judas's reaction to what Jesus said would happen to him. Verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests, elders. This is the part we don't often remember, that Judas repented. Verse 4, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, went, and hanged himself. This burden of guilt is what so many Christians carry with them. Too many of us, upon hearing the story of Jesus, are made to feel that we betrayed him. We're told that we nailed his hands to the cross. We spat upon him, and therefore we need to feel guilty. But Christ does not want to heap guilt upon us. He is not interested in us carrying a burden of shame. He died for us. He is for us. How much it must have broken his heart to see not only what his friend and disciple Judas did to him in betrayal, but to know the guilt and shame that drove Judas to suicide when he realized what he had done. Judas knew that what Jesus said had come to pass, and he couldn't bear the guilt that made him feel. Many of us know that Jesus died for us and feel guilty because we're imperfect or because we mess up. But then we see Peter's reaction to what Jesus said he would do in Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. He denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. Here is another of Jesus' close friends and disciples, probably one of the closest, realizing the truth of what Jesus told him would happen. But here's the difference. Peter, knowing what Jesus did for him, despite 
what Jesus knew Peter would do, is overwhelmed not with his own guilt, but with the good news that Jesus still did it. He wept after realizing his betrayal, but then he goes on to dedicate his life to sharing this beautiful truth, to telling the gospel story. He was overwhelmed with Jesus' love, and so he fed his sheep. Going back to an earlier conversation between Peter and Jesus, we see the relationship and response Jesus desires with those he loves. In John 21, 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three professions of love and then three statements of denial. But it's not the guilt of denial that lasts in Peter's story. It's the love for the Savior that loved him. In the scriptures we've read today, we see a foretelling of Christ's death and the love that it reveals. A foretelling of Judas's betrayal and the shame that it uncovers. A foretelling of Peter's denial and the redemption it exemplifies. As we're in this season, as we're looking forward to Easter, as we experience the stories, the songs, the ceremony of commemorating Jesus' death on the cross for us, let us not be stirred towards guilt and shame, but towards love. 